Welcome to the Layer 8 Podcast, Season 2. This season, we'll again hear from the experts. These experts are social engineers and open source intelligence investigators. Sometimes, they'll tell us stories about their experiences, and sometimes, we'll have some questions for them. We hope you'll enjoy them. Welcome to this episode of the Larry Podcast. We have a great guest for you today. We have Sin Windy with us today. How are you doing, Sin? I'm doing good, Patrick. How are you? Doing quite well. For the benefit of our listeners, do you mind letting people know a little bit about who you are? Absolutely. Uh, so I'm Sin. Most people probably know me as Sin Windy in the OSINT community. I have a background in traditional intelligence before I switched over to OSINT. I've worked for a number of uh, law enforcement and non-law enforcement government agencies. And more recently, I've switched over to the, the private sector. Um, so now I'm, I'm working for private companies rather than the government, but still doing a lot of the same work, uh, focusing mostly on cyber attribution. So how did you originally get into or interested in OSINT? Originally, I was going to school for my master's. I actually wanted to be a ambassador, so I was kind of going through that career track. I got a little bit into it, realized I wasn't uh, diplomatic enough to be a diplomat, and so ended up going more towards the intelligence side, national security. Didn't really have a focus on OSINT at the time. It was just kind of general uh, intelligence. I was working for the Department of Defense for a little while, and that's kind of where I got more into the OSINT side of things. And then from then on out, uh, I went into more of the law enforcement OSINT, uh, mostly attribution and kind of finding people who are not really wanting to be found. So an, an ambassador, that's pretty interesting. When, I, when you first started mentioning an ambassador, I wasn't sure exactly if you meant like an international ambassador. What drew you to that kind of thing? Um, mostly the, the travel and the food, uh, being able to kind of go work, you know, anywhere in the world, well, in most places with a few exceptions, um, getting to try the food, seeing the local local sites. I'm really big on uh, photographing graffiti, uh, photographed it all over the world. And so that was something that really drew me in at the beginning. Um, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't necessarily as easy as I, th- as I thought it was going to be. And I don't think my, it we had a little bit of a personality clash. It does seem as though it, it requires a bit of uh, politics to to get involved in the ambassadorship and diplomatics. Absolutely. And I'm not necessarily known for uh, holding my tongue on things that are important. And so it wasn't, wasn't quite the right fit. When did you first learn about what OSINT was? I've heard various people say that they were doing OSINT before they even heard the term. And I think I might have even had some guests before that said, you're the one who introduced them to the term OSINT. How did you first discover that that's what it was? And were you doing it even before you had heard the term? So I definitely was doing open source intelligence before I knew what it was called. I was doing more kind of like open source research in the the, uh, Department of Defense early on. Didn't really know it as uh, OSINT or anything like that. It wasn't until I came over to the law enforcement side where we had some trainers uh, come on and they actually used the term OSINT and open source intelligence. And that's when I started pulling on the strings and, you know, kind of going down the Twitter rabbit hole and, and, th- and things like that of, you know, who, okay, who else is doing this? Who else is involved? And are they calling it the same thing? Are they calling it something different? Um, so it took me a little while to figure out exactly what it was called um, after I was already doing it. And when you're doing intelligence for government organizations or Department of Defense, do you do a lot of actual OSINT versus proprietary sources? 
Yes. So a lot of what I did was actionable, especially, you know, Interpol, for example, we, I worked with red notices. So red notices, uh, somebody is allegedly committed a crime in a country, that country wants to have them extradited back to face charges. And so we would get red notices in and my team's job was to locate where these people were. So we would have to use open source intelligence to see if we could find social media, um, you know, use internal sources, of course, stuff like that. But basically see if we could locate these people, where they were currently living, what they were doing, so that we could have law enforcement go pick them up. And so a lot of what I did was basically kind of in furtherance of that goal of locating these people so they, they could face uh, their charges. And what might have been some of the typical tools or typical OSINT tools that you would use to find these people? Everything from your typical like person searches if they're the US, if they're outside the US or Canada, then obviously things are a little bit more sparse. A lot of what I would do would involve just social media deep dives. So finding um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, going through photos, seeing just little bits of information, license plates. A lot of times these folks will change their names and so you can scroll through comments and you might know them as John, you know, John's the one who you're looking for, but then you'll go through and you have JJ popping up in the comments all the time. And well, it makes sense, you know, you're a wanted person, you're going to change what you go by. And so doing stuff like that to kind of find other bits of information that we could then pivot off of and locate them. Cause maybe John doesn't have an arrest record where he's at, but JJ might, you know, he may have given a false name to the law enforcement officer when he got pulled over. And one of the things that I really love to hear about is when you have a case that you're trying to find somebody and it seems nearly impossible to find the person, but then you stumble across that one little piece that pushes you over the top. Have you had those types of experiences where you think like this person's never, I'm never going to find this person. And then there's that one little thing that is the tip of the iceberg. It's funny you said this as you're saying that I'm actually picturing the exact case in my mind. So um, was looking for an individual. Usually when I would do some of my soft target threats, we would have somebody would make a threat online. I'm going to go blow up this mall. I'm going to go shoot up this school, those kind of things. Um, I spent a couple of years working those specifically in which I was supposed to find the individual before they were able to commit this crime. And then we'd have somebody go pick them up. And so in those cases, usually it would be resolved within hours um, sometimes a couple days, but you know the goal was to get them as quickly as possible if they could cause any harm. Had one specific case where I'm wanting to say it took two to three months for we were able to identify this person successfully. Um, was by far the worst in terms of our you know time to time to identify. And early on, it was one of those where I think pretty much all of us were just sitting around like we're never going to figure out who this is. We found out later on that the individual, very very intelligent individual was able to kind of co-opt a online persona of somebody who already existed. And so we were chasing the wrong person. Um, nothing was matching up. And so one of our other analysts was able to identify a very specific uh, location in one photo that we were able to obtain. And at that point, it was, you know, all bets were off. And we, we were able to figure out who it was um, and successfully identify them. But it, I mean, it took countless man, woman hours. There was, you know, the whole team was involved on that one. What is your opinion or advice on tools versus strategy or mentality? What advice do you like to give to people 
when it comes to using the tools versus just knowing a strategy on, on how to search for things? I'm definitely a big fan of strategy over tools. Um, just within the last couple of years, you know, there's been so many tools that have come up, gotten really popular, and then they completely disappear uh, <laughs> into nothingness at that point. Um, Facebook, you know, will change their graph search, which will in turn break tools that rely on that graph search. So I'm a big proponent of the techniques, the methodologies, um, you know, just knowing basic intelligence principles, the intelligence cycle. Um, I feel like that gets you a very long way. I also believe that if you're going to make, if you're going to use tools, you should also try your hand in making them. Um, it gives you a better understanding of how they work, and so that when you know your favorite username tool, for example, does break, you do have the ability to go through and possibly make fixes or build your own, kind of kind of circumvent uh, that tool being broken. What qualities would you say that makes for a good OSINT person? You definitely have to be curious, and you have to have the drive to continue learning because it changes so quickly. It's impossible to keep up with everything. So, you know, having a good understanding on a couple areas, you have folks that are experts in cryptocurrency, geolocation, you know, code analysis, stuff like that. Having having some of those are really good, but don't try to don't try to boil the ocean, right? You you can't learn everything. So be curious, learn a little bit about everything, but don't don't kind of like get too deep into all of it. One of the questions that I often ask people near the end of an episode, but I'll ask you earlier, what are some good ways that somebody can get started in the field of OSINT? If somebody wanted to just start learning about it and jump right in, what are some ways that you would give advice on how somebody can do that? So Twitter is a great way to start. There's a pretty decent sized OSINT community on Twitter. You know, I, I did do uh, put together the OSINT Dojo. So those in Dojo kind of is designed to fill that gap where you're not really sure where to start. Uh, we've got a bunch of free resources, whether it's tools, techniques uh, that you want to learn. And we also do weekly challenges and we also link to other challenges that other people post. So, I'm a, you know, everyone has a different kind of learning type. I'm really I, do, I tend to do really well with doing something and learning that way. And so, you know, Go do the geolocation challenges that Quiz Time does. Go do some of these try hack me boxes and you know learn by doing. That to me is probably the, the, the best advice I can get. Let's talk a little bit more about the OSINT Dojo. Why did you create that? What came across your mind to think like, I wanna create this thing that's going to help people learn OSINT? I left the, you know, left the government and was starting to work into the private sector. And I was kind of having, I was having honestly an internal debate on whether or not I made the right decision. Um, when, before I left the government, my most recent job was the one doing soft target threats. And so I had this kind of internal fear that now that I have left, you know, I don't know who's coming in after me and doing this, who's taking over my job. Are they going to be able to do a good job? Are they going to be able to stop these kind of threats? And if not, is there some way that maybe I can help the folks who are going to be doing it after me? Because when I started doing it, it was basically just, you know, you're on your own. If a new platform pops up, then you have to become an expert in that platform very, very quickly or else you might miss something. Right. And if you miss something, those could have very dire consequences. And so that was kind of like the initial thought behind it was, can I put something together that has you know basic resources, whether it's tools or methodology or just like my OSINT attack diagrams, 
putting everything in kind of one place that can be updated, that's not behind a paywall. You know, anybody can go and can pull it. And then also including stuff like the challenges, because if you don't have real world examples to work for, then it doesn't really, it's, the training doesn't really like take a, a good effect for me at least. Um, if I'm doing something and I'm never gonna see it in my job, like that, that, that has no value to me. But if I build different challenges, different, you know, the try hack me boxes and those kind of things and do it very similar to what I experienced, not exactly one-to-one to a case, but you know, I was working on a case and this happened. How can I re-implement that into a challenge so that somebody else can get that same kind of experience? And what does it cost for somebody to use the OSINT Dojo? So everything at the OSINT Dojo is free. Um, we don't we don't charge anything. It's uh, the website, the hosting's very cheap, so I have nothing out of pocket on it. And it's basically just kind of a a freebie to the community um, to make sure that everyone has some good resources to start off with. And how does this work? Like I'm reading the homepage and it said that this is done by laying out a total of 25 OSINT related challenges spread across five different ranks. What are some of the typical types of challenges that there might be in there for somebody to learn? So kind of keeping in the theme of, you know, building your OSINT skills, your OSINT portfolio, all of these levels kind of focus around things that you would have in your typical real OSINT job. You know, you're going to have to get used to writing reports. That's just, if you if that's what you want to do, if you want to do OSINT, you have to get used to writing um, because you're going to be either writing reports or you're going to be briefing somebody higher up. And so I do ask uh, as part of each of these levels that folks write early on, it starts off as, can you do a challenge and then write how you figured out the challenge. So explaining your steps, explaining how you found this kind of information, and then it builds on to something a little bit more complicated, like, you know, writing an article that's OSINT related. Um, there's also some video challenges. You don't have to you know, record yourself speaking on the video or in the video, your face, but learn how to put together other kinds of information because everything doesn't really fit nicely into a written report. Sometimes you have to do you know, screen recordings and stuff like that. And so kind of getting used to the different skills and the different tools you might be using if you would be doing a, a real job in OSINT. And so the idea is as you progress through all these levels, you start building yourself a little bit of a portfolio. So even if you're not working in OSINT, you're starting to build you know, all these skills, but you also have something to show for it so that when you do apply to these jobs, uh, if they, you know, sometimes they ask, sometimes they don't, but you can supply maybe a GitHub if you write tools, you can supply any articles you've written, stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's really great. I know that lots of times when people ask me how to get started in this industry, that's one of the pieces of advice that I give to them is just write, create a, a blog and put up information on there. And even if it's stuff that's been done before, still just write it up just so people can see what is your thought process, what is your methodology. And it, it doesn't matter if it already exists. If it's new to you and, and you're learning it, then that's valuable for somebody to see. It sounds as though that's similar to what your thinking was with some of these requirements to rank up in here. Absolutely, and, and what you said about, you know, it might be new to you. That's something I've noticed with a lot of these challenges is, you know, I designed them with a specific sort of route in mind. So I expect someone to go from step A to step B to step C. What I don't understand or don't realize at the time is there are folks who approach it very differently. And so they might start off at step A, but then they hit step D, E, F before coming back to B and C to finally solve it. And so 
you know, looking at the folks who do this, I always ask them in our weekly challenges, show your methodology. That way, if somebody's stuck, they can't figure it out, they can just go into the comments under the spoiler and they can go through step by step how to solve the problem. And I found that a lot of the times what I expect to be, you know, sort of the process flow is completely different when some of these other folks start getting started in it. And that sounds like it's also a great learning opportunity for you to be able to see people doing things different ways. Is that information available to others after it's submitted so that others can share and to see how the different paths were taken? Yes. So on our weekly our weekly challenges in Twitter, uh, we do have a, a little spoiler. That way, that before someone goes down to see it, they don't see all the answers. But if they would like to see how other folks did it, or if they, you know, they're just stuck and they can't figure it out, it's a new tool or a new technique, then they can go under that spoiler on that that weekly Twitter post, and they can see how everyone who successfully solved it, how they how they went about it. I see on the rank requirements for a student, the very first one, it says participate in an OSINT CTF. What are those and how can people find those? So I use CTF somewhat loosely. Basically, there are a couple that already exist that are you know, a little smaller. The bigger one's going to be like the Trace Labs Missing Person CTF. There are other Capture the Flags. So for example, we have a Try Hack Me box that uh, the, Do- the OSINT Dojo put together earlier this year, the Sakura Room. We also count that. It's basically a, it's a little bit more in depth than in regular OSINT challenge that might just take you know, a couple minutes to maybe an hour. These CTFs are usually a little bit more involved and cover a little bit more different, a uh, little more techniques, um, sometimes a little bit more expanding on the tools and that kind of stuff. What's the, the furthest along that somebody has gotten within the, the ranks of the OSINT Dojo? So to go through the uh, the entire system takes, uh, and uh, I apologize because I've not looked at it in a while. I believe it's 13 months. I've, last I looked, I think we have one or two folks who have reached the samurai level, and I think they're coming up on the daimyo level. You know, I will say that being said, it is kind of a choose your own adventure. Um, there is no single path to getting through it. You can. We have folks who, as soon as they're able to apply for the next level, they've gotten everything ready and lined up. And then we've also got folks who are taking a little bit more time in between each level. So it just kind of depends, you know, you're going to get out of it what you put in. And so it's going to take a little bit longer for some folks uh, than others. Yeah, I like some of these quizzes that you have in there. Like you mentioned, Sector 35's multi-part OSINT quizzes. Are there lots of different quizzes online that people can participate in? And how do they find those types of things? So Sector has done his multi-part sort of email quizzes for a couple of years now. Um, that's that's the main one that I'm aware of. You know, the, some of the smaller quizzes would be stuff like QuizTime does. So they do uh, heavily geolocation-based quizzes, and they do those Monday through Friday. Occasionally, they'll have one on the weekend, but primarily it's going to be during the weekdays. And how about this one, for example, where it says attempt one non-geolocation-based OSINT quiz. What might be some of the other types of OSINT quizzes that wouldn't be geolocation-based? Right. There is a, a pretty heavy skew towards geolocation-based OSINT, uh, especially in the quizzes, you know, with quiz time. But something that would be non-geolocation-based would be, we, we have done a couple of them that were based on Shodan. So can you locate uh, this webcam on Shodan can you show maybe old photos that the, you know in the history section that were on there? Uh, kind of some stuff like that. Maybe some code inspection or some very simple photo manipulation. Those kind of things. 
And what might be the, the starting point for something with the camera? Is it just like a photo that that camera took? Yeah, so in a lot of those, we would use a photo of that webcam. Um, and so they would have to start off by first geolocating that photo, which is pretty typical for most of the quizzes, the geolocation part. But then rather than stopping there, they would have to go into Shodan, narrow down their search to that area, and then look for different cameras that might have uh, the same timestamp, for example, from an old photo, or might have some of the same header information that was listed. And so kind of narrowing down their search until they're able to find the exact camera that took that photo. And that would be even more fun if the person was able to submit a photo of themselves taken by that camera. <laughs> that's, that's not happened yet, but I would not be surprised with our community. What type of feedback are you getting about the OSINT Dojo? How, how long has it been out? And are people really flocking to this? Or are you trying to drive even more people to it? Is it a lot of work for you? We started it back in November. Um, so it's a little bit less than a year now. And it's had its, it's, had its ebbs and flows. Um, I'm always happy to have more people come through, but it's more of a supplemental type thing um, than a standalone system. Whether it's going to be you know, popular or not is not necessarily for me. Um, it's more to encourage other folks to get out there and share their research and you know, kind of build so that they have something to show for themselves when they do go to apply for their first OSINT job. Yeah, you have quite a few resources in here. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of these resources that you have where I see you have methodology, some domain-specific tools? You have a lot of information here with great places to start. So everything in our resource section is kind of filtered out by domain or kind of categories. So if you kind of know what you're looking for, say, you know, Gab, for whatever reason you're doing an investigation on Gab, you have no idea where to start. You can go to the Gab section and they'll have some of the, some of the sort of basic starting points. Um, obviously some of the social media platforms are gonna be a lot more tools and techniques than the others. Uh, Gab's not gonna be quite as robust as something like say maybe Reddit or Facebook or Instagram. But it's basically to give you a starting point so that if you do come across a new platform, or if you, you, know, you kind of remember something you know, that somebody else had done, and you remember talking about this tool, this technique, but you're not really sure the name of it. It kind of gives you a starting point to sort of get into that kind of research. Yeah, because I was thinking some of these resources that you have, or at least the resource page, seems in a way similar to like the OSINT framework with the number of links and the amount of resources that you have here. And it's really mm -hmm. nice that you can just scroll through and you have them all categorized. So if there's something specific that somebody's looking for, it seems pretty easy for them to find it here. Yeah, and one thing I did recently was I added the little link on the side of each of the sections um, that will lead directly to the section. So you know, if, if you're wanting to share something with somebody and it's further down on the page, they don't have to scroll through the entire page to get to it. Because I know that, that was a kind of a common complaint that I had early on. And I see that you also have lists of things like conference talks in here. Have you given conference talks about OSINT? I have given, I gave one last year for Conant. Um, I was going to do one this year, but uh, for health reasons, was unable to get one done in time. Um, but last year I did one on dark web and OPSEC. And basically OPSEC mistakes where a dark web marketplace administrator or seller um, basically gave themselves away and ended up getting arrested. And so I do have a sort of follow-up part two to that um, that I've been working on, but I've been unable to finish it this time. 
So that presentation was about how the person got found and is the follow-up on how that person could have prevented being found? So the first one, I did three case studies. One was with Dread Pirate Roberts and where he had reused some of his identifiable information. Another one was where the individual had posted a photo of them holding drugs and we were able to pull the fingerprint from that photo and you can get a positive match off that fingerprint. That's how he was identified. And so what I did was I went through, showed what the mistakes they made, and then showed the steps that can be taken to basically solve a similar type of case. So how do you pull a fingerprint? Well, here's the steps that you go through to manipulate this photo if it's high enough quality, and here's how you can pull the fingerprint off of it. And so for the follow-up, I was working on a couple other ones, um, most notably being, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mr. Mr. Swirlface was an inter old Interpol case, um, and how you can take the, the photo that he had manipulated and reverse the effect uh, in Photoshop and actually get the original photo out of it. So that he could be, uh, that's how he was identified. I had not heard of him. Is he somebody that you can tell a story about? So he was not a case that I had worked on. Um, he was a he was a pedophile, if I'm not mistaken. He was uh, he was somewhere in Southeast Asia at the time, but he had he had different photos that Interpol had released on him, and the photos were manipulated with a swirl effect in Photoshop. And so, you know, there's different kinds of photo effects that you can use. Some of them are one way, and some of them can go both ways. Well, he made the mistake of using one that goes both ways. So once they were able to get the photos, they were able to figure out exactly how he was swirled in one direction. And they were able to basically swirl him in an equal but opposite direction. <laughs> and doing so, they were able to get a pretty good shot of his face, uh, you know, do a little bit of additional photo manipulation. But then those photos were released to the public and he was ultimately identified and arrested. And just looking through a lot of these resources here, I can you know, picture in my head some of the uh, people that they are related to. Do you have recommendations on people resources that are in the community that you would recommend people either follow on Twitter or go see their conference presentations? Or who are some of the, the real leaders in the OSINT community that you would recommend people go check out? That list is probably way too long to get through <laughs> in, a, in a you know an hour's podcast, but I think you know some great starting points: the OSINT Curious Crew, um, the Searchlight Crew, which have now kind of merged with the OSINT Curious Crew on the Discord. Uh, there's a lot of great folks there. Nicole Beckwith, uh, she's also done a lot of really great work, especially her and Nico. Uh, from OSINT Curious do a lot of stuff with kind of like the psychology and like how it affects uh, the analyst. And so those kind of things are, I think, very important for folks, especially ones who are starting out who, you know, might not, you know, in, in the government and in DOD, you kind of get that kind of training. Uh, you know, here, this is the kind of stuff you're going to see. And here's how you can kind of handle, you know, how do you unplug afterwards? How do you kind of, you know, not let it affect you quite as much? And if, for folks who are just getting into it for the first time, who don't have those kind of resources, uh, they, they have some, some great talks and some great information on that kind of stuff as well. If you wanted to walk somebody through your own methodology of when you start an investigation, maybe it was you know, with something as small as just a first name, last name, or a photo, what types of things would you do for that uh, investigation? So 
kind of my standard methodology. Uh, a lot of what I did was based heavily on social media. Um, so I would have, for lack of a better word, some social media dorks. So kind of like a Google dork where you know what to type in to get certain information. I would do the same thing on like Twitter, Facebook. You know, for example, if I'm trying to identify an individual, I would use some such as, you know, call me and start searching for any posts that have call me in it. Because sometimes they might include their phone number, you know, or text me, something like that, very similar. Um, also use something like, you know, my name is, if I'm looking for a first name, last name. And then sometimes that would help get kind of, you know, you don't always get great information because people sometimes will give either bad information or false information, but kind of like kind of those sorts of things, which is usually where I would start off. After I've gone through sort of exhausted all that is when I start looking for other accounts, social, you know, other social media accounts that might share the same username, um, maybe some reverse searches on profile photos, those kind of things. Uh, and then after that, it's usually when I start getting really deep into the, the photos. So I've had a lot of luck with photos uh, during most of my investigations. Um, things that are seemingly innocent can come out to kind of bite you in the end. Um, I had a I had a person who was making threats online, and oddly enough, the the way I was able to finally tie him to another account was a photo of his cat. He had a very distinct pattern on the the face of the cat, and you know all the analysts around me are calling me crazy because I'm just going through just scrolling through photos of this cat. And then I find a another Twitter account where it's a Twitter account for this individual's cat. And I'm like, okay, the, the patterns on the face match. And so I start going through that account. And as I'm going through that account, I'm starting to find additional photos of the house, the outside through the windows and those sorts of things, which was able to eventually identify the, the individual's house and then get their name from that. I was going to ask you about the the value of friends and family when trying to find someone, but I never really thought about finding a unique looking pet or anything like that. That that's pretty pretty fun as well. Yeah, it's, it's something about you know social media where there there is always an oversharing aspect for some people, but you know I don't know if it's trying to get you know social media famous where people will make accounts for their kids, accounts for their animals, and stuff like that. Um, but when they do that, a lot of times they will also go through and they'll add those accounts. And you may not make these accounts with the intention of eventually committing a crime. And then a year goes by, however long you have the account goes by, and then you commit a crime or you do something to get somebody's attention. And then you forget all of those threads that you left behind, like you friended your other accounts, for example. And so it's kind of like it's still there, but you forget about it. And those are usually the the things that in my experience, those are usually the things that kind of have the most value because they're, they're forgotten, right? Like they don't scrub old social media accounts sometimes, or, you know, they might have gotten really good OPSEC the last two years. But if you go all the way back to the history of the account, they've made some very critical mistakes. And that's usually where you see the, the biggest OPSEC mistakes? Absolutely. Um, you know, folks who will... They'll, they'll be really good now, but in the past, um, they may have given away their name, phone numbers. Uh, ha I've seen them you know, post photos. And they don't always delete them, but even if they do delete them, you know, the internet is forever. So you have things like the Internet Archive, archive.is. They're, they're you know, other tools that will sometimes bring back that information. I mean, at that point, they're probably better off just completely burning the account and starting over. 
And have you had experience with people who had really great OPSEC, but friends and family blew it for them? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, the, the I've had many folks where their downfall would be their significant other, their spouse. Uh, there's been a couple cases where it's been their children or their parents um, because they will have their lo- their account completely locked down. Nobody can see it from the outside unless you're a friend. But then you, f- you notice, okay, they're having a lot of interactions with this other account. It's got the same last name, same location. They're probably related. Once you go to that account, you realize, okay, this person is a, they're an open book. They're sharing everything. There's birthday photos. There's all kinds of stuff. And you're able to kind of put those pieces together to figure out enough information on your actual target. It might have been Micah Hoffman recently who said that he's had great experience with, with moms where moms on social media just love to share all the photos of the family get togethers, the holidays. And sure enough, he's found people in some of those pictures as well. Yeah, usually if it's not the mother, another one that I've had a lot of luck with is the the girlfriend, especially if it's a kind of a strange relationship or an ex-girlfriend where they'll just kind of drag the other individual through the mud and they, you know, they're not going to take that down, right? So they leave that open and those are usually those are usually the best cuz they just leave everything out in the open. Sin, one of the questions that I often like to ask people, do you have any kind of great stories of OSINT that you can share with people? So I do have one story that's kind of like my first, my first ever kind of foray into OSINT. Back when I was first going for my grad school, when I switched over to the intelligence, uh, intelligence degree, I was a bartender. And so I would drive about an hour each way to work. Um, and one day as I'm driving, I had a car kind of sideswipe me on a four lane highway and they took off. And so as I'm on the phone with the police dispatch, I'm sort of following this car down the highway, trying to read off the information that I had to dispatch. You know, the driver looks like this. Here's the plate. Here's the kind of car it is. You know, here's what happened. And so, you know, after I got all the information in, I, I pulled over because, you know, there's no reason for me to be chasing this person down the highway and, you know, possibly causing another wreck. Police comes. They take my information. You know, they take some photos. And that's kind of the last I heard of it. And they weren't really getting anywhere. Um, they had the license plate, but they weren't really, you know, they didn't seem very interested in finding this person to give me the insurance information. And so I called my insurance, gave them, you know, what I had, but without the insurance information, this was years ago, so they couldn't just look it up. So after after that, it was kind of like, you know, this is a dead end. Well, one day I'm driving through and I happen to see the same car again. I kind of pull up alongside the car, trying to be as, you know, inconspicuous as I can, but drive up next to the car and kind of look to see what the driver, you know, is the same driver. It was the same driver. It was a young, young female. And she had a very kind of distinct pattern of dress um, that corresponded with where she worked. And so I was able to kind of figure that out. Um, She worked not too far from where I was bartending. And that made it easy because they had a very distinct uniform with some very distinct accessories. And so I had a kind of a starting point. Um, I went to the local police station uh, afterwards and asked for a copy of the police report. All, I have, all you have to do in this little local city is pay, I think it was like five or 10 bucks, and then you can get a copy of pretty much any police report that they have on file. So I got that and I was able to get the full transcript of everything that I had read off during the call with dispatch previously. So the description of the individual, the license plate, the car, the whole nine yards. So using that information and knowing where this person worked, I was able to go through and find 
her social media account, her Facebook account, as well as her parents' Facebook account. And so I'm going through and I'm trying to figure out, you know, I, I initially I tried the direct contact method, which in hindsight was not the best. Just, you know, basically, hey, you sideswiped my car, like I need your insurance information. Of course, she blocked me, <laughs> got no information whatsoever. So I decided to go a little bit more creative route, made a sock puppet account. Uh, I knew where the individual went to school. She was a, a senior at a local high school. So I made the sock puppet account appear as somebody who had gone to that local high school. You know, did not have any identifiable photos or anything like that in the sock puppet, but just enough information where they say, oh, this person goes to this school. Yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and add them. It's a big school, no one's gonna know. And sure enough, she accepted the friend request. I got in, had made a little bit of small talk. I was like, hey, don't you drive this type of car, this year car? Oh yeah, I was like, well, what happened on the left side of your car? Like, did somebody hit you? What's going Oh, I sideswiped somebody. And I was like, oh, okay. And so we're, we're going, kind of going through, trying to get as much information as I can. And, you know, I don't know if it was just, you know, oh, it's, you know, a boy's taking interest in me. You know, we're in high school. I'm going to, you know, kind of give him all kinds of information. But she was very, very open when she did not know it was the person who was looking for her. And so was able to take that information and go back to the insurance company and come to find out that this was not the first time that this individual had done this. So they had a, another record they were able to pull uh, using her name. And so they were able to go through and pull an old record where she had done something very similar. She had rear-ended another car and left the scene. And so they were able to use that police report and that information to submit a new claim on her insurance. And so ultimately my car did get fixed. Um, that sock puppet account also got got blocked very quickly afterwards, but <laughs> it, I mean, in the end it was, it was all worth it. At that point you had the information that you needed. Absolutely. It was, it was a definitely a, a burnable sock account at that point. I had everything I needed. And you also mentioned how you did bartending. There must've been some degree of social engineering there as well, where when you're working for tips and trying to keep people happy all night long, it seems as though there's a, a degree of social engineering when you're behind the bar as well. Yes, absolutely. So <laughs> I would be, you know, I, I'm very much an introvert. Um, I would be a lot more outgoing, obviously, bartending because obviously the tips depend on it. I think most of the social engineering aspect for bartending, for me at least, was kind of like reducing confrontation with others. Um, I'm not exactly the the smallest man. And I don't, I don't know if it's just something about, you know, wanting to fight the biggest guy in the room. Um, but some, po some folks, when they get alcohol in their system, you know, they want to fight any and everybody. And so I would often find myself kind of the target of that, of, you know, this guy's not giving me any more alcohol. I think he's, I think I'm tougher than him, you know, what, what have you, but basically trying to talk those folks down. Hey man, you know, I really don't want to fight you. Like, I don't, I don't feel like going through all this kind of stuff today. You know, I'm, I'm tired. You're tired. Like go sleep it off. And a lot of the times, you know, if you're, if you're very calm with them and kind of, you know, don't be aggressive, don't, you know, don't raise your voice, you know, trying to talk them down. Um, I've had a lot of luck in that in terms of, you know, kind of social engineering my way out of a fight. Um, because otherwise, I mean, if that wasn't the case, I would have been getting in fights every night at the bar. <laughs> and it's just, it's just not worth it, especially the older you get. You can probably talk your way out of some of those things as well, just by putting down your own ego and helping to build those up. Like, Yep, you're the man. You're great. Here's another drink. Right. I mean, is you know, <laughs> it it doesn't. What what somebody on the other side of that bar thought of me at the end of the day didn't really mean anything to me. Um, you know, I was there for a paycheck and trying to get my way through school, and 
this was a, a pretty big tourist location. So chances are I wasn't going to see these people ever again. It wasn't like I was, uh, you know, in a local city where the same kind of regular folks came in all the time. Um, this was, this was a tourist town. So I might see them again in a year or two, but chances are I'd never see these people again. So if, if they thought they were stronger than me, tougher than me, bigger than me, by all means, let them think that. And in that job, did you also learn how to read people from a distance when they were coming in to get an idea about are these people in a great mood? Are these people on vacation? Are these people looking to drink problems away? Is that something that you could just read on their face when they walked in? Uh, not necessarily their face, but a lot of times their demeanor uh, and the way they carry themselves. Yes, um, you know, I, a lot of the times when someone would come in, you could kind of spot the the problems or the troublemakers. Um, you would know very quickly who was going to say not have their li their driver's license. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm old enough, and I left my license in the car. I was like, you know, go back and get it. I, I can't I can't serve you without it. You would you would kind of learn, you know, the folks who would be sort of necessarily problematic with the, the other staff, I might tell them no, but they're going to walk around to the other side of the bar and try and get somebody else, you know, get the other bartender to serve them, for example. You can kind of spot those people very quickly. So in addition to that first story with the car sideswipe, have you had other times in your OSINT career where you've had to mix in a little bit of social engineering with it as well? Not necessarily. So with, especially in like, in, you know, working with the folks in law enforcement, we had very distinct, uh, you know, lines between what we could and couldn't do. So, as a an analyst or an investigator, we were not able to interact with targets. We didn't have the same kind of training that, say, a undercover officer would have. So, we might work with that undercover officer, um, but obviously, they're going to be the experts in the social engineering aspect at that point. They're going to be ones who are going to be, you know, actually going through interacting with the target. Um, that being said, being able to feed the officer, you know, any kind of tips, tricks, like, you know, maybe it's a, a kind of a group or a situation that they're not familiar with, um, something like that. You know, we <laughs> just as an example, we have, you know, say had an officer who we were looking into a community that they would have never found themselves in. Right. It was completely out of the realm of what they did and they had never even heard of it prior to running across this, um, the specific target. And so trying to kind of sort of give them the background on, okay, what is a furry? Okay, this doesn't make any sense to me. You know, explain what a furry is. Okay, why do they do this? And so like going through like, you know, here's, here's what they do. Here's kind of like the social aspect and like going through all this kind of information because otherwise, you know, going in, they're not gonna have any kind of background or history and, you know, something like that could cause them to make a mistake or, you know, not get the information that they need because they're going to get outed very quickly. If somebody wants to find out more about you or get in touch with you or even with the OSIN Dojo, how can people do that? So the best way to get in touch would be over Twitter. Um, um, Twitter is, is at SinWindy. Uh, if it helps you spell it, it's SinWindy. And then for the OSINT Dojo, uh, we're also on Twitter. It's going to be at OSINT Dojo. Thank you for doing this, Sen. This has been a whole lot of fun. I'm glad you were able to, to join us today and tell us all about your background and the OSIN Dojo. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Thank you for listening to the Layer 8 podcast. You can find out more information about us at layer8conference.com and find more podcast episodes on many of your favorite platforms. We hope you enjoy these episodes as much as we enjoyed making them.